Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 285. So, last week, Stephen, you had a question for everyone. Yeah, that question was, what was the most computational intensive work you've had to do on the job? So, my response to that is... I don't know. Did we even talk about it last week? I think we just left it open at that. I think right? we left it open. Yeah. Okay. Is I did a mixed integer, uh, integer nonlinear optimization problem, which is like kind of like a uh, sorting algorithm. But um, the thing with, with mixed integer is you need to, ha- it's like I wanted whole numbers out of it mm. and so a lot of times when you do like a bin packing algorithm or whatever you get lots of fractions well you can't have for example you can't have fractional pcbs like you can't have half a pcb on a panel and so this was just kind of a thought experiment i was doing at work and since it's uh um it was a packing algorithm it was non-linear because you could uh it, there was not a uh a um fixed endpoint, I guess, to the problem because there was a bunch of different inputs and the, uh, I think it it had a basically N squared um, uh, variable in it. Oh, okay. So it made it nonlinear. And so how I solved it is I kind of (laughs) cheated. Is um, I basically made a, I I looked into, because I wanted to solve it in Python um, and I looked at installing a lot of these, they're called M-I-N-L-P's, uh, um, which is Mixed Integer Nonlinear Optimization Problem, um, and tried solving or having, like, basically, basically what you do is you, uh, I can't remember the Python module, but you can build the, the model, which basically you go, this is the formulas that you're trying to optimize for, and, like, your variables are X and your and Y, and you're trying to solve for Z in these bounds and this kind of stuff. You basically build that model, and then you send it to a solver. <laughs> it's like it when, rip. yeah, and you just let it rip. Um, and the one I found that I was using for a while was called the Apopt solver. A P O P T. Um, I think BYU is uh, is running. It's like it's like a um, academic server. But you can just send it problems. Hmm. And so I was using that for a while to just play around with, you know, could I do an offline style packing algorithm for that? And kind of cheated, I guess, because I didn't actually write the solver myself. But I found this a good solution for it. And it did work. Um, the only problem was during the summer, I'm going to guess uh, that there's no students there because it's BYU. And... Uh, Sometimes the server would go down, and you're like, "Well, my solver ain't working anymore." <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess that counts for the uh, the question because uh, the most computational intensive work. Uh, maybe you didn't necessarily do it on like a piece of paper, but it is probably the most computational intensive. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the big thing was actually building the model correctly, though, like making sure that when you built the model, it would give you the right answer when you solved it. Mm. Um. Yeah, the main thing was because a lot of those bin packing algorithms would be a lot easier if you could use fractions for mm. like the outputs. Um, like, I mean, the first thing I tried to do was like solve it and then like min max the output. So, like, if you got 4.6, like, go like you would floor that 
to like four. Yeah, sure. But then you got, you leave a lot on the table. Basically, putting into a mixed integer was the way to go, and and then setting it to whole numbers only. Nice. How long I did guess. that take you to to crank it all out? Oh, I think it was a about a week of just trying to figure stuff out on in the afternoons, just trying to figure out like how to build a model correctly and um and then find a solver that worked. The big thing was actually finding a solver that worked. I really wanted it to be local on your machine, but I couldn't really find a solver that uh I guess the best way to put it is was easy to get running. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. And then this was just an API endpoint. You just kind of like bundled your your model up and then sent it and they had a their own Python script that kind of did that for you. Mm. Uh man, I wish I knew what the the module I was using for the um, for the building the model. Well, you tell us yours, Stephen. I'm going to look that up. Well, last week I, I talked about you know I got, I got to really dig my teeth into a differential equation, but uh, in terms of probably the most computational intensive thing I've had to do. Um, so at my first job, I, I was asked to, or I, I let's say I inherited a project uh, that um, uh, this this device needed to work universally with any probe system that could connect to it, which traditionally each device was calibrated to each uh, probe. And you would buy them in sets or you would buy a family of probes where their characteristics were generally close enough that you could plug it into a family calibrated device and it would work. Well, the, the company wanted to make a universal device that could take any probe, plug it in, you could connect over USB and say, it's this type, and then it would put... Um, uh, coefficients into the, the microcontroller that would change itself to figure it out. So basically what happened was every probe was nonlinear and needed to be a, I think it was a sixth order polynomial, but each probe had a polynomial over temperature. So in one axis of a chart, you have a polynomial in a, uh, that is the probe's characteristic across frequency. On the other axis, you have... Uh, temperature, but then there's sort of like a more quantized axis that is each probe. So I had to I had to take each probe, characterize it across uh, the frequency spectrum, then put it in a thermotron, move it to a temperature, characterize that polynomial, move it to a next one, and I created a we called it a surface. Uh, so yeah, it was a, like a 3D map. Yeah, it was a 3D. Yeah, it was a lookup surface yeah. that was based on temperature and probe type. Uh, and then we had a little AVR just crank that out in the, in the uh, device. So in terms of like, it's not particularly difficult, but it was a bit of a lot of, it was like a month and a half of constant temperature testing and probe testing to get to generate all of these polynomials. And to, from what I know, they're still using that stuff. So, <laughs> so I looked it up. It's Pyomo, P-Y-O-M-O. Hmm. That's a a uh, Python module that um, you can for building models and then you attach a solver. So it's solver agnostic, I guess. So you can use a different backend, but lets you to build models, hmm. mathematical models. So cool. Um, Chris Lafke. I think that's how you pronounce that. Yep. Lafke uh, sent us an email about this topic and our, Assessment that it is uncommon for engineers to need this is quite biased 
since both of us work in engineering uh manufacturing well okay and 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 this comment that, that chris was given is is in relation to last week where um i was mentioning uh you know this was one of the first times i've really had to dive into a differential equation and and really get dirty with some upper level math uh, and things, and and so I wanted to clarify a point because m- perhaps I didn't actually uh, express it properly last week. I think the clarification is is not that I'm saying that that upper level math is um, unnecessary or or tedious, and and we shouldn't be learning that. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm I'm very much positive towards that. I think we should be really getting into it. I guess the point that I want to get across is, say, if you're you're green eyed and you just leave college. Um, don't be disappointed if your job isn't doing that all the time, because uh, there's a high likelihood it's not going to be doing that. Now, now Chris pointed out at his job uh, that there there are engineers who do that. Um, he's he's doing something of that sort, like higher level math as a requirement for accomplishing the tasks. I, I guess what I'm just getting at is, like I said, don't be disappointed if that's not what you're doing. Yeah, um, and. Those theory classes and math classes, even though if you might not use those at your job, like actually doing like a differential equation or whatever, those help reinforce your gut checks and your rule of thumbs that you end up developing over your life as a engineer. Yeah, I mean, over 10 years later, I was able to recognize a differential equation and I was able to crank it out. And that's only because I did my college work. Mm -hmm. Now... This is going to be a side tangent, I guess, on this um, is I don't necessarily agree, though, spending so much college work on actually cranking out like differential equations and stuff, though. I would have rather learned how to write a program or figure out a different way to solve those problems, um, like recognizing recognizing a problem is a differential equation and how to solve that perfectly fine but sitting down and then like spending basically your first two years of your engineering degree in math classes just cranking out like by hand those formulas is that really the best use of your time and money i don't know i i think you need where to you be can able go to wolfram Al- alpha and like just punch it in and it'll spit it out yeah, someone had to write Wolfram Alpha, you know? Someone, yeah, yeah, but that's the thing is, though, is you can leverage the whole thing about the human experience and human thing is leveraging the past. <laughs> and then and then sitting down and then I don't by think it's hand, that easy doing differential equations by hand isn't really doing that. I think if you don't do it by hand, then I don't think um, it's I don't think you have, first of all, the the appreciation for it and uh they might not stick out as cleanly and uh and as clearly to you when you do actually run across them i don't know because you can't you can't just like plug in a bunch of variables into wolfram alpha and have it say like oh i understand what you want out of this no no that's the thing is understanding what building it like how earlier i was talking about this like building a model right i couldn't I could sit there and by hand crunch the model and solve it, but why? Well, okay, okay. I, 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 there's a difference between understanding mathematical concepts and just hammering out arithmetic. Yeah, no, but how much, how much of your math class was just hammering out arithmetic, though? That's every single test. 
Well, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, especially the upper level stuff. Uh, especially like I, I remember distinctly Calculus Three when we were having to find like the volumes of unique shapes. You like it just said volume. Find the volume of this shape, and uh, you had to in your mind. Uh, see which direction you were going to approach it to do a triple integral, and you could approach it any way you wanted. Yeah, but at and the some end, ways were easier. Well, and, at the end of that test, uh, end of that answer question, though, did you have to write an actual answer, or could you just left the equation? <laughs> well, okay. If you're if you're a true mathematician, you just get to the point where you find out yes, there is a solution. I have found that a solution exists. But uh, but in, at, at the end of the day, an engineer needs an answer. But if, honestly, if you can just leave. The a question there, or not the question, the uh, the formula there that you've you've solved it. Except that now you just like you can take that model that you made that solves your volume of that weird shape, the volume of the cow, right, the frictionless sphere cow, <laughs> and throw that into your computer. I rather would learn would have done that. Like, like I would have. We, as engineers, we would benefit more from that than actually sitting down and then cranking through that formula <laughs> by hand. The ant and the answer is forty-two at the end. <laughs> That's the answer to every question in college. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I still think that there's value in um, in completing your work and and going to to the point where you can't go any further. I think that is there's value. Maybe your first math class. Well, but I mean, okay, L uh, I, things are different between physics, mathematics, and engineering. Uh, you know, the, the mathematician wants to know, can you, can you chunk this apart to find, does a solution exist? The physicist wants you to characterize it and say, what happens across, if I change this one, if I take this one variable and multiply it times four, what happens to the end result? Uh, and, and then the engineer actually gives you real world values and says, find the answer. Now there's, there's a difference between all three of those worlds. And I think being able to think about each one of those separately makes you a well-rounded engineer. Sure. It's just, it's a waste of time on the test. Maybe. I don't know. And it all takes is you just have a, this is the thing. When you're at a job, you don't do that stuff by hand because you get, you get it checked. Because if you do, you have it's more error prone to do it by hand than to get your model done by a computer, processed by a computer. So I'd rather have learned that part. Uh, well, okay, but but here's the thing. Like, yeah, I use simulation all the time, but that simulation is informed entirely by the equations that I knew because I cranked them out by hand. I don't just plug in a circuit into my simulator and then whatever it gives me, I believe to be truth. Like I plug in a circuit and I already have an idea what the output is going to be. I just don't know exactly what it's going to be. And the simulator helps me kind of narrow the field into what that's going to be. Well, that's totally fine. But did you take that model and crank it out by hand first though? No, but but like the fundamentals of that model, I did. I don't know. I I just don't see it. It's just a waste of time. I think, for me, I think yeah. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I I think the way you're thinking is perhaps a little bit more ET engineering technology, which frankly I think ET students get the short end of the stick because what you and I do on a regular basis is ET work. But we went to school for double E 
and we got we got hammered by a bunch of like crazy theory and then as soon as we left they said do practical stuff no no theory is totally fine i i love those classes when i was in school the thing what i get is it, what i'm trying to get at is like you solve a differential equation once solving a hundred of them does that make you understand it better not really Getting to the point where you actually get to the point where you've created a differential equation, the, the, you created the model, the formula that describes the system that you or problem that you want to solve. Going farther than that is just arithmetic at that point. It's just, it's busy work is what it ends up being. And a computer is very good at doing busy work. I'd rather have learned building that model and then and then learning how to actually make a computer do the busy work for you. That's way more um, useful for real engineers, I think, than sitting down and then for two years just busting out arithmetic. Well, I don't work. think it's, it's like memorization. I don't think it's that easy. And Why I, do you need I, to I memorize think- a lot of stuff anymore? Like, like it's been proven that schools that base their curriculum on on memorization is uh, isn't as good as other uh processes i think repetition is is uh powerful incredibly powerful for remembering things in fact the the human brain uh, i i learned this in a in a college class in in a psychology class uh if you want to remember anything the rule of thumb is to do it seven times even if you're trying to remember somebody name somebody's name say it in your head seven times and uh that they they've they've proven that if you if you do something over seven times you get incredibly diminishing returns on uh, on remembering it because you basically remember it by seven so seven is sort of like the sweet spot and so when it comes to doing arithmetic uh doing arithmetic in different ways so different problems that challenge your mind in a different attacking it from well, a different just way just do it seven times and don't do it a hundred times <laughs> i don't know maybe our experience was different in school well so we uh, we talked about this before probably not on the podcast but well we have we're gone so steven went to a&m a university here in texas and i went to university of texas at austin um and the biggest difference what i can figure out is um my math classes i took math classes at the math department with mathematicians like I was like the only engineer in my class. Um, and that's really common for that engineering. De- the engineering department at, at UT is just the engineering classes, like anything else like chemistry or uh, all your extracurricular that like they let other departments handle that. Whereas at A&M, I recall you take with all your peers, which well, might it, be the difference. So it's still the math department. And it's still yeah, taught still math by math people, but there was enough engineers that they just decided, um, you know, this is a math class where all the students are engineers. And for the for the first four, all the way up through DiffyQ, they were identical to the math uh, classes. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, they started becoming tailored, where you do less proofs and you do more projects that implement uh, what you're learning. So... Honestly, I wish we would have done projects that implement it all the way down to Cal 1. I really wish that was the case. Because I took classes that 
I took a lot of DSP classes, which does a lot of calculus stuff. And that stuff I really liked because you built the model and then you coded that into your C program that ran on a microcontroller and you let it solve it. <laughs> but you, but, but, but you still had to tell it what to do. So you had to have an understanding of what it was doing. Yes, but I didn't have to do the busy work. Sure, sure. That's fine. That's totally fine. In terms of once you've gotten to the point where like the, the fundamental and the concept is in your mind, yes, I agree. The, the busy work is annoying. Yeah, I, I didn't have to spend three semesters doing busy work because I could have done it from the first semester, but whatever. It's just, it's just frustrating where like looking back in college and what was a waste. I, okay, I say waste of time. It's, it was never a waste of time, right? But what could have been used better would have been, sure, you spend part-time, you know, during maybe a first couple iterations by hand. So you at least learn what it, how it works, right? By hand, how, how the, uh, uh, all the uh, functions and stuff work, but then move into, okay, now let's actually do a real application where you need to do this, this computation a thousand times. How do you do it a thousand times? in like a second. So that's just me though. I, I want to be interesting to see where the divide is uh, with our listeners on this topic. Cause I did not expect to talk about this for 22 minutes, but we did. <laughs> no, this is great. We haven't even really breached the next topic, which is awesome. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's funny cause uh, we, we mentioned in here, um, well, well, Chris, Chris, mentioned that uh chris lafke going back to that email that was sent to us mentioned that we both work in manufacturing actually both parker and i have worked in design for a good chunk of our careers um and manufacturing is a portion of that uh so the, you know that that kind of just leverages a little bit more what i was talking about where uh you know depending on what industry you're going into uh, will very heavily dictate what kind of mathematics you're going to expect. And on top of that, the, uh, like a lot of our listener base isn't just electrical engineering. I, my, my guess is electrical engineering probably has some of the more intensive mathematics stuff, whereas like industrial engineering is not not going to experience a differential equation as, as, you know, as often or, or something crazy. Like I think Chris mentioned something about um, RF and, and, uh, and some of the, the crazier high frequency world. And that stuff starts to get really nasty, really fast. Um, so yeah, and I was like, actually, uh, Steven and I's design background is why we are really good at the manufacturing side as well. <laughs> Cause we screwed it up. A bunch. Yeah. We've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I like your sentiment. We can leave it with this, um, Parker wrote, theory classes do reinforce your gut check and your rule of thumbs at 100%. 100%. And again, I'm not against theory. I'm just against the busy work because, you know, we got computers to do busy work for us. Let the robots do it. Is that the whole point is like to let the robots do as much as you can, all the busy work? So. All right, let's move on. Okay. Um, So over the weekend... I think on it was Saturday at six o'clock Central Time. Um, we did a kind of like introduction for hardware engineers on Python, basically setting up a Python environment on Windows 10, and then setting up a IDE PyCharm, and then basically writing a little script to talk to an Arduino with Skippy. 
Um, and that was a really good success. Um, we didn't actually run into that many issues and Steven got his, like, he has an old, uh, an old, um, PLC, a a, uh, Arduino PLC. Yeah. That thing is from like episode, like 40 of the podcast. This thing is really cool. Um, and you got a relay to flip on it in like (laughs) less than an hour. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The thing that I was most surprised about is, um, I, you know, I, I was quiet. 90% 90% of the time, I just kind of followed along Parker's stuff. And this is not a dig on Parker. This is just like a general dig on these kinds of things. Like, I was expecting to run into some kind of snag where we'd have to debug a whole bunch of crap and it would be annoying. And, it, and like, for some reason, like Python wouldn't install on my computer or whatever. No, like everything went super smooth and we really didn't run into any errors whatsoever. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, actually. Um, I think it's a te- it's one of those I've done the busy work before. <laughs> I'm trying to make that so, stuff so work. What, so what you're telling me is I just let the computer do the busy work. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See, somebody knew the fundamentals of what to do. Yes. Yeah. No, that's fine because, but that's we we've left that topic in the past. <laughs> so I'm not even going to bring up the last topic. <laughs> Yeah, so so that went really well. Um, I guess we have the recording up on um, Twitch if you want to uh, yeah. recap and go ch- uh, check it out. Yeah, it's a Twitch VOD. I need to download it and then I don't know if I'm going to edit it or or just I think I might just toss it right onto YouTube. I don't think we said anything naughty on it, so you can just dump it on. I'm more worried about like editing it down to be more concise because it's an hour plus long and th- a lot of it is us just like chatting for <laughs> actually okay we, it, we, well that's true we did chat a lot because we basically did another podcast <laughs> no 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 so, so here's the thing though uh you were you were pretty concise for the first like 30 minutes and we got to if okay so if you want to get to like the meat and potatoes and the conclusion watch the first 30 minutes if you want to just hang out with us watch the second 30 minutes yeah pretty much no, it was um, it was great. I'm I'm super excited about it. I think uh, I think it turned out well, and uh, hopefully we're going to grow that into uh, some more stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, and speaking of all that, I finally made a huge breakthrough today on at work on this mm. kind of stuff. Um, basically, I was running into an issue with I've got like eight devices that I got to like talk Skippy with and all that stuff, and I was basically running into this issue where devices would just lose connection randomly, but then immediately get it back. And I was really struggling to how to solve that correctly. So we're using this module called PyVisa, um, PyVisa Vi, uh, no, PyVisa Pi. Um, and trying to solve that problem, and there's not a lot of good solutions out there, and I couldn't really figure out like a really good way to do it. Um, one of the solutions was actually migrating off of Windows being the OS and moving to Linux. Um, Windows, especially Windows 10, I found out does a lot of weird stuff with USB devices and it will tend to like disconnect you, but then reconnect you and not tell you that happened. Like it won't tell like the top level that that happened. It like hides it from like the, the physical hardware layer uh, interconnect, um, which kind of sucks. Cause then you go and try to talk to your device and the device goes, what? <laughs> it's cra- Okay. So it's crap like that. Why I like embedded programming above 
computer yes. software. Like, oh. um, and so what I uh, ended up doing is I migrated off to Linux, which fixed that problem. And then, because um, when when it would happen on Windows, you just get a generic like connection error, and you don't know how to solve it. It's just like error, and you're like, well, that's generic and you don't really know much how to fix it. So migrating to Linux, it actually would give me real errors that I could actually go and fix my, my code. And a lot of it was fixing. Um, basically I was running into conditions where I was trying to, I was doing a read or a write and then immediately trying to read the port when it was still, the buffer was still draining out basically. So waiting for that kind of stuff. Um, and then when devices do reset, I could actually properly reconnect to them. Um, and so in Windows, it does weird stuff on the COM port end that you, it's really hard to reconnect to devices without having to like act instead of, uh, ooh, excuse me, um, without just disconnecting the device physically and then reconnecting it. In Linux, you can get around that um, pretty easily. Um, and so... What I was able to do is basically when a device got disconnected, it would look at the ports and it would reconnect. And sometimes it reconnects on a new port. And so you have to go, okay, where's, what's the new port that I have to go to connect? So as long as not two devices disconnect at once, my solution's fine. Um, but the chance of that happening is pretty low, right? I, it's never happened so far. Um, in the couple months I've been testing it, it's always been like one would fail. Um, and I really want to fix that problem. Like, I don't know what actually causes a COM port device to just stop. It could be I'm running eight devices on like a single hub. Um, and there's a lot of communication going on, but it should be, that shouldn't be a problem. And I'm using a high end hub. I'm not using like a cheap, you know, dollar store hub. I'm, it's like a $180 industrial USB hub. That's all like self-powered and it's like a hundred watts of power and all that good stuff. And yeah, I don't know what the, my, my solution works now. So I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. And just, I wish that wasn't a problem of just devices randomly disconnecting sometimes. So if you only have like one device, it seems to be fine. I think it is just a, there's just so much communication going on with those drivers that it just one just hiccups basically. Um, how fast are you having to hit everything? Um, well, I'm trying to hit them as fast as I can. <laughs> um, that's the thing. I'm trying to hit everything as fast as I can. Now it's pulling the, the buttons on the unit once every second and a half. Oh. Which isn't a lot of data either. That's no, that's, that's really cool. slow, and it's really slow. Um, but yeah, I think it's just the fact that there's like eight devices, and and I do make sure like the devices are locked. So like when when a um, part of because the, the the script is um, multi-threaded, so you have to. I had to worry about making sure that only a um, one thread is only accessing the device at once. That's all groovy. That's never been, that's not a problem. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. Sunspots, man. Are you doing multi-threading in Python? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's how it handles like the, 
because I'm loading a lot of DUTs or device under tests into a fixture, but you can asynchronously add them in. And so that's how it handles it is one thread is basically handling like the user interface and then a, and it has a queue backend. And then another thread is handling sticking stuff out of the queue and then running tests on that. Cause you can only run cause how the, how the tests are set up. You can only run a test on one piece of hardware at a time, but you have 12 units like multiplexed into it. So the idea is, the operator loads one, presses the button, loads another one, presses the button. And then by the time they're done loading the whole unit up, the first one's done and they can pull it out and reload that. And then the next one's done, et cetera, et cetera, all down the chain. So it's just continuous operation. Yeah. Continuous operation. Um, but yeah, today was a big, big plus up because finally got a good way on resetting the devices correctly. And reconnecting to them without having a, a uh, issue, a fault, basically. So, like, the operator doesn't even know something bad happened, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I'm going to be wrapping that up hopefully tomorrow. Oh, nice. It's probably going to be Thursday, though. You've been working on that for a long time. Yeah, it's been like eight weeks. So, in uh, kind of in relation to uh, the Python class... Because it went well, um, I, I, I figured uh, we could use what we did in that class to kind of resurrect something that I've had on the back burner for a while. Um, I, I've had a, a design that I started uh, about a year ago, and it, um, it's a board that allows me to do production bias testing on my guitar amps that I have. And uh, the, the reason I put it aside is because I just didn't need it at the moment. I knew I would return to it. And um, it's something that could, like, there's there's many different levels of intensity that we could add to it. But given how well the Python class that Parker taught went, uh, we kind of discussed, well, how do we, how do we t- like, upgrade this to the next level? And kind of looking at GUIs and accepting data in and then displaying it to a user is the next sort of logical step on that. So I, I decided to resurrect this bias test board because I eventually will need it and I want to get it done sometime. Uh, so the funny thing is with with COVID and with um, uh, the part shortage and every, almost everything I designed is just not available or it's obsolete now. So it's just like, okay, well, uh, effectively, I kind of have to start over. L- luckily, <laughs> it's it's not a very difficult design Um what it, what it all boils down to is I'm just taking a bunch of voltage measurements. That's, that's it. And, and at the same time, I love this too, because it, it's going to relate to if we ever get into that multimeter design. So this is sort of like, we can use this as a stepping stone of, of concepts and things. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I have 10 voltage measure, well, more than 10, but 10, specifically 10 voltage measurements that I need to be able to measure up to 500 and 50 volts. Uh, and uh, what what it actually ends up boiling down to is with the, the circuitry I chose, it, it'll, I have my, my voltage sensing range is zero to 1000 volts, which is well beyond what I need. But what I love about that is any kind of transient that happens, or if uh, the device gets put in an incorrect 
situation or like say somebody accidentally plugs it into like 220 volts I'll still be within range and I won't uh, damage any of my inputs I think so I'm sacrificing a little bit of resolution range for just a, an enormous front end that doesn't require uh, like um, diode protection uh, which can throw off the uh, results that I'm, I'm looking for by loading the inputs uh, incorrectly so the, the thing about this so I've got 10 voltages that I need to read that are up to 550 volts. Then I have four voltages that I need to read that are in the range of like, mm, typically like anywhere between 10 and 50 millivolts. So like way extremes on the side. And at the, and at the same time, I also want to have a resistance measurement in this box. So four low voltage measurements, 10 very high voltage measurements, and one resistance measurement. And uh, because of all of that, uh, there's, there's some unique characteristics that made finding an A to D for this kind of difficult. So I, don't, I, you know, I haven't really talked to you much about this, Parker, in the past. Um, have you dealt with A to Ds much? Besides microcontroller, built-in microcontroller ones? Yeah. Not much. Um, I done, I done some current sensing, but yeah, not nothing that required like what you're talking about here. Yeah. Like dedicated service A to D stuff. Yeah. Um, well, off, no, I've been playing some dedicated ADCs for that kind of stuff, but nothing like it was like, okay, it has enough resolution and it might, it's probably fast enough. It's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. So that's, that's just the thing. Okay. If you, if you, I find searching for A to D's to be, both really really fun but also just mind-boggling uh because it's so there a to d's have so many characteristics about them that it becomes difficult to uh, dig through all of the data sheets to find this is the one that will do it for me and uh, and i kind of as i was going through and trying to find a good a to d that would meet my application I started writing down characteristics that I'm thinking about to find this. So I've, we've got, obviously we got resolution because that's what everyone goes to right away. But you that's have, the biggest one. you have speed. How many samples per second is the thing going to do? Uh, for me, cost is a factor. I'm only going to be building one of these, um, but I don't want to spend $60 per piece on a, on an A to D. You know, I just don't want to. I could, but I don't want to. Um, accuracy, which is different than resolution. That is that is one. Uh, all How close is that bit to the real value? Right. Well, and and that has a lot of implications. There's there's linearity. There's full scale gain errors. There's all these other uh, mm -hmm. characteristics to go into it. Um, but there's there's features above and beyond that, um, like what uh, uh, does it have a cup holder? <laughs> What protocol does it does it communicate? Yeah, so with? I, was, I was going to say protocol, but I, I like the cup holder thing. <laughs> that might be worth a, the sixty dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, what protocol? Like if if you've already got SPI on your board, do you want to add I I two C or or whatnot? Um, what what voltage ranges uh, does does that protocol work on? Are you going to need to do level shifting? Uh, the you know some of them have programmable. Uh, gain amplifiers in front of them or digital filtering and things like that do you want all of that jazz on it some of them have internal clocks for their uh for their sampling speeds some of them require you slap a crystal on the outside like none of this is easy 
and and you kind of mm. you kind of just wish you could say here's my voltage range here's the resolution in bits that i want give it to me but like not that never <laughs> works right like that's sure when you're talking about an 8-bit uh a to d and you don't need lots of resolution that might get you by right but but in terms of what i'm talking about you also got the package too like the physical right package of the part is it something you want to deal with yeah you might find like this really awesome a to d but it's in like a, a ridiculous bga package that you don't want to deal with right because mm-hmm. it would be like the only bg on your board and it would it would quadruple the price of your pcb for, for, the, yeah. for the bga for your assembly yeah yeah um so yeah there's there's tr- there's a lot more than these the uh factors that i put down there but these are kind of like the big ones that are so for my high voltage measurements i have a uh, a high voltage high accuracy cadoc uh resistive divider that's on a ceramic substrate so uh, this thing has really low temperature coefficient and its accuracy is like uh 0.05 tolerance and i think it has even better um what is it? Uh, resistor to resistor tolerance on the inside, the ratio uh, itself. So this this particular one has a bunch of different um, ratios. You can do one tenth, one one hundredth, one one thousandth, um, whatever whatever you're looking for. So I've selected to do one one thousandth uh, resistance ratio on there. So five hundred volts, zero to five hundred volts would give me a range of um, zero to five um, five hundred millivolts which is not particularly uh, large because I could have done zero to five volts, right? That would, that could potentially mm-hmm. make sense. But in uh, with the A to D that I chose, it actually makes sense to go lower on your input voltage and then use the programmable gain amplifier because you can actually get more resolution by gaining up afterwards, which is kind of crazy, but uh, I'm basically following what the data sheet recommends uh, from this kind of stuff. So your overall noise is a little bit higher. And I mean, a little bit. We're so talking about fractions. Accuracy of, is a little bit off. Just a little bit, but your resolution can actually get higher by doing it that way. So having a higher gain on the inside gets me a little bit more resolution. So for yeah, all of my high off, voltage, Yeah, your, your, your increase in noise is not enough to offset the loss in resolution right right and 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 the difference the difference is fractions of microvolts so it's kind of ridiculous here that's a really good uh gain stage in there yeah no it's incredible it's um well and and on top of that i'm buffering my stage because this uh resistive divider here has like i don't remember it's like 10 mega ohms for the whole stack i think so it's like 9 meg and then 900k and then 90k or like it all adds up to 10 meg and uh and i specifically i so i i chose a low offset op amp to act as a buffer in between the a to d and this so i i've got slapped that in there and then put a small amount of filtering on that uh because i don't want my a to d to drag down my voltage divider and just give me errors just from being there uh which uh, you know i may run into so a small amount of error but i think with the one one thousandth division uh, I, I the lower tail end of that resistor is so low that slapping on an op amp buffer uh on the front end is going to basically show up as no error or so low that it'll be beneath the resolution of the a to d 
which the ADD I finally ended up choosing was the ADS twelve fifty six, which uh, well it comes in two different flavors the twelve fifty five and the twelve fifty six, which the t- and those are actually in stock. Actually in stock, I could buy it right now, which is is great. So. Both of those are a single A to D, but they have uh, the twelve fifty six has a multiplexer on the front end, so you can you can multiplex between input channels, and so you can expand it to be eight channels effectively. So a pair of these will allow me to do all of my measurements uh, by just f- multiplexing between the inputs. At the same time, it's it's kind of cool because the inputs can all be configured to be single ended or differential if I wanted them to be. All of my measurements are positive and ground referenced, so I'm just going to do single ending just to make it easy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I suppose I could do differential on my resistance measurement. But uh, for the resistance measurement, I just developed a um, constant current op amp output that just spits out one milliamp, and uh, it. And then I already know that my. I'm not trying to measure any resistor with it. I know guaranteed that the minimum resistance I will ever subject this to is 100 ohms and the maximum is 2.2k so i know that if i pump 100 milliamps into it i'll have 100 millivolts up to 2.2 volts so i just have a range right there uh to deal with so i'm not trying to make like a end-all be-all resistance measurement it's just this is a production thing with known resistance yeah this is a product uh a um you're basically building a purpose-built multimeter so it's not a multimeter it's a in this case, a dual meter. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and the hope is... Well, it's to- a single range ohm meter with a single range voltage meter on it. Well, on, yeah, on top of that, I, it does. this thing is not going to have test probes. It has a header connector that you just plug into my PCBs, and my PCBs have a standardized layout that plugs directly into this. So, like, the user doesn't even need to clip anything in. They plug into one pinned header and uh, and then it just dumps out stuff so so the 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 goal here is to to make something that uh uh, allows me to not have to train people how to calculate bias uh i'll let a python script do that and so i want to make a a graphical oh you're letting the python script do the busy one exactly exactly yeah i see i know how to do it but that's because i've done it a thousand (laughs) times So yeah, I want to I want to make like a red light green light kind of thing. So have a graphical interface that shows the numbers on it, but the user doesn't need to know the readings that are actually coming in. It's just red when it's not right, and then uh, they turn a trim pot on the board, and then and when the power dissipation in the power section is just right, it turns green and they stop and they and they're good to go. It would be cool if when they knew which way to adjust it. Uh. I well, I know that that clockwise is hotter and counterclockwise is yeah. cooler. So uh, yeah, we could we could put a little arrow indicator. Yeah, just a little arrow to tell them which way to turn it. But the test procedure already starts with before turning on the device, uh, you turn the trim pot fully counterclockwise. So you're only uh, going to be turn turning it up. low. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. You don't want to yep. put it into an overheating situation right from get go. Yeah, from the get go, yeah. and the guy turn the, the operator turns it on and goes to lunch. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, yeah. That's the very first thing you do. Will when you get that design mostly done, um, we should do an episode where we just cover it and like all that design stuff. Like this is the resolution, and then 
calculate all that stuff out. That'd be fun. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done a good chunk of that. I mean, the, the, I'm already, um, putting parts on the PCB right now. So I, I shouldn't say calculate it out. I'm like, go through the, the, um, what's the best way to put it? Cause you, you've already done the, like, explain why you're picking these parts, but like, you know, I, for, I forgot to mention this is 24 bit A to D. So it's, very high resolution. Uh, yeah. What 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 would be interesting is to, are you aware of ENOB, effective number of bits? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, so y- you buy a 12, 24-bit A to D, you're not getting 24 bits of resolution out of it. Correct. You, you're basically never going to get, you know, after maybe like 12 bits, you're never going to fully get all of those bits. And I know somebody's going to chime in and be like, well, I, I have a circuit that doesn't. Sure, it could happen, right? But uh, but the um, I'm not going to get 24 full bits. I know I need 17. So I got a 24, and I'm allowing myself a budget of a handful of bits to screw it up with power supply crud and layout yeah. crappiness and, and things like that. As long as I have, as long as I have 17 bits, then I will be able to read the 10, uh, tens of millivolts on a 500 volt signal. And that's what that's I need to good. be. Able- yeah, it's really good, right? That's so you, you need a really high resolution. Um, you know, it's funny. The only reason I need to do that is uh, because I'm trying to measure um, some current, some really low uh, value current in that in that situation so i'm measuring across the resistance which hey that's why i have the resistance measurement as a separate thing in there you can measure the resistor store it in the program and then you can calculate your current based off of an actual measured resistance value in there okay so So, i i i I have a better way to phrase what i was saying earlier is we should just go through the the formulas of and how you pick these parts cool yeah so like on resolution this was your range, and then this was uh, your considerations of your input into why you picked that resolution. I love that. that. Yeah, let's let's do it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. We can make sure that it works first, though. Also, well, uh, here's 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, uh, so back it all up. Here's one of the uh, reasons why I picked that chip has nothing to do with most of those things except for cost. If you go to try to find a high resolution single package A to D. Yeah, in singles. Let's we'll just talk about singles right now. You're looking at like four to twenty dollars, somewhere in that range for like the the lion's share of them. This ADS twelve fifty six is seventeen dollars, but it mm-hmm. has eight A to D's inside of it. So each A to D is like two bucks. Uh, so that was one of the big drivers there. <laughs> Not a cheap part, but it also it's a really good part. It's yeah, it's a fantastic part. Although it has so many bells and whistles that it it's going to be a trip to program it. The programming's actually easy. It only has a handful of registers in it. But almost every register you write to has an impact on your enob. Uh so like if you change your speed. Uh, that's yeah, that'll change your enob. If you change your gain, that'll change your enob. If you change any of these things, you have to you have to remember like you can't just willy nilly change anything inside this. You have to know what what the impact is of doing it. On top of that, there's there's one okay. So this thing has a self cal situ uh, thing that's really cool. 
you can throw it into self-cal mode. It turns off all the inputs and it, and it dumps uh, a voltage onto the input and then it, and then it goes through a, a calibration routine. Now, depending on other settings, that calibration routine takes a certain amount of time and they have a very well-defined chart of how long it takes. So let's say you turn the multiplexer to look at one input on this device and you're reading some voltage and then you want to go to a different input, but you want to change some of those other characteristics like the gain or you want to change the buffering or filtering on the input. Well, then you have to run that self-cal as well. So you kind of also have to consider like, oh, my loop time of how fast I'm doing this. If I'm changing any settings, do I need to do another self-cal or can I just accept the error that comes along with not doing a self-cal? Well, that screws with the e-knobs too. So it's like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's going to be really, it seems really, really easy to program, but very deep to get the actual result you're looking for. So it'll be fun. Yeah, I think so too. Yep. So, uh, yeah, before we close out, we'll just spend a real quick second on this. Uh, so uh, on July 9th, uh, our President Joe Biden uh, signed an executive order that includes some wording for right to repair, which is uh, kind of interesting. Parker and I have mentioned right to repair a handful of times on the, uh, on the cast. And um, uh, I just thought it was interesting, some of, the, some of the wording that was included in here, because uh, now it seems like there's, as opposed to uh, state and local legislation, it looks like it's getting a little bit higher up to federal legislation. Uh, so back in May of 2021, uh, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, released a report called uh, Nixing the Fix, which was basically a uh, just an overview of what right to repair not even right to repair. It's an overview of repairing your own devices. It, it's not yeah, it's specifically like a state, right to repair. State of the industry and repairing your de repairing anything actually. It covers yeah. a lot of things. It's like fifty six pages, which isn't too much. But uh, if you got a moment, scan through it because there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And this this report was presented to Congress. I don't remember exactly when. Um, but but this report is basically what has led to the uh, this executive order, which you know we'll, we have a link to the executive order up here. Uh, the the wording that's actually in reference to right to repair is pretty thin. It's it's not much. In fact, uh, I got the wording right here. It says. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of legal speak, so I'm going to jump in the middle of it here. It says. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, the chair of the FTC in the chair's direction, oh, sorry, discretion is also encouraged to consider working with the rest of the commission to exercise the FTC's statutory rulemaking authority as appropriate and consistent with applicable law in areas such as, and then they have a bunch of different areas, and one of them is unfair, anti-competitive restrictions on third-party repair or self-repair of items, such as the restrictions imposed by powerful manufacturers that prevent farmers from repairing their own equipment. So it kind of almost seems like the wording that's in here is dedicated to farm implements, uh, which, you know, with the whole Don Jeer, uh, Don Jeer, uh, why am I, uh, messing up the name now? D John Deere. John Deere. Yeah. Geez. Wow. Yeah. they got some, uh, dyslexia going on here. John Deere. Um, uh, it seems in relation to that case, right? 
or the, that idea. But it is interesting that uh, we're starting to see a lot more traction on that on uh, a more federal side. Mm-hmm. But basically what that's saying is um, if you're John Deere, you can't in, you can't on purpose prevent someone from doing that stuff repairing their own device well and and the thing is you know this executive order just basically grants the ft ftc the ability to look into this not even the ability it's basically just saying like keep an eye out on this so there's nothing like legal about this yet uh yeah it's basically the fcc has kind of they're allowed to research this now or look more into it right right don't turn a blind eye to it because I don't think the FTC can even do anything about it yet either. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't believe they can. So, cool. Yeah. So we'll put the links up in the uh, macfab.com/blog. Yeah. So I'm going to my homework, and for everyone that's listening as well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this uh, FTC report nixing the fix that came out in May 2021, and then uh, we'll bring this up again. You know, next podcast talk about this report because I, I was skimming through it before the podcast and it looks very interesting on kind of like the state of, of repairing things. And I kind of want to read about other industries and that kind of stuff. And, um, I can't comment too much about it cause I don't know anything about this whole executive order or this report as well. So that's for so, so one thing, uh, as you're reading it, just keep this in mind. Uh, I, th- I they do, they break it up into sections, and um, I think they do a pretty good job of defining what those sections are. And and one of the sections I think is really good. It is the arguments from the manufacturer's side, not necessarily the manufacturer. I'm sorry, the the property owners or the um, yeah the the owner of the uh, the device, IP. the IP. Basically, it's all of their arguments and some of those argue and, and they don't present them in a in a bad light or even a good light. They just say these are the arguments. And uh, I, I enjoyed reading that because it was a very clear and concise way of putting together a lot of the things that Parker and I have said, especially. Did they reference like us? Safety. Yeah, I wish. Right. Uh, <laughs> especially stuff about safety. Right. Um, yeah. You know, or yeah. or if 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 somebody else fixes it, are they going to fix it correctly? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I want to go through it and I'll, I'll, I'll make some notes. So but that's what we're, that's our question, I guess, um, for our listeners this week is um, it's not really a question. It's more like read this, please. It's this stuff. This stuff's really important. In fact, and it affects every probably every single person that listens to this podcast. Right. And, and if it's part of an executive order, it may be uh, federal law sometime in the future. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Maybe Joe Biden can run an executive order that says you have to listen to this podcast.